So uh, this morning we're we're nearing. Have you got me? Yeah, good. So this morning we're, we're nearing the end of our studies in in Romans eight, and we're going to look specifically at at verses thirty one and thirty two this morning, which are really the the beginning of the conclusion uh, to this to this chapter. And and hopefully you've noticed as we've we've gone through Romans eight over the last couple of months now. That, that Romans 8 is just packed full of some wonderful deep truths. And, and those truths are something that we really need to take a hold of uh, in our Christian lives. And, and these truths are all rooted and grounded in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the providence of, of God for us. And, and, and we need to take them, as, as Scott just prayed, this is the living word and it needs to be etched into our hearts uh, by the Holy Spirit. And, and these words need to become a part of us and motivate us. They need to be foundational in all that we do. And, and it's these words and through the power of the Holy Spirit that, that are able to sustain us through the deepest of valleys. And, and when, we, you know, when you look at these w- wonderful truths, even last week when we were thinking about looking out to that future horizon and the, the hope of glory that we have in front of us, those are words that embolden us and strengthen us and give us the power to keep going day after day, even in the face of opposition and difficulty. And that's some of the, what we're going to look at uh, this morning. Problem is that one of, the, one of the issues we have as human beings in our minds is that we don't like to take in new information. And, we, and since the fall and since sin has come into the world, we don't like to take these truths, and we do everything in our power to push those truths out of our minds. And, um, and especially when it sounds too good to be true, and some of these truths, when you look at them, they just sound, wow, really? Is God that gracious? Is God that good? Is God really on my side? Is really God for me? And because of that, we can be skeptical and quick to forget some of the things that we've looked at over, over these last weeks. And, and the Holy Spirit knows this. And so Paul, when he was writing this chapter in Romans, under the Spirit's inspiration, he closes this chapter in verses 31 to 36 with seven questions. And those questions are designed specifically to slow us down and to get us to think and reflect on what we've just considered and read in in the chapter preceding that, and actually the whole way back through the, through Romans, and I think you know another. This is me on my lecture and soapbox for the minute, so just forgive me. But um, one of the dangers that we live in living in this society these days is that we can come to the Bible, and we can treat this like any other social media feed or news feed, where it's just a a stream of information of disconnected random facts. Um, and none of it sinks in because we're used to just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling to the next thing and the next thing. Those things are called infinity pools. They're designed deliberately to distract, to have a never-ending stream of, uh, of information before us. And none of it really sinks in because it's all, you know, most of it, 99% of it is irrelevant to our lives. The Bible isn't like that. The Bible is an infinity pool. It will take us eternity to figure out just the wonders of of the truth that's been revealed to us in God's Word. But we need to slow down when we come to the Bible, and we need to think carefully about what we've just read 
and heard. So, rant over. So, we're going to read from uh, Romans 8. And I'm just going to set, to, to set some context for these two verses, I'm going to read from verses 28 through to the end of the chapter. Uh, and then we'll come back and we'll look at specifically the three questions, the first three questions that Paul asks in response to all that's gone before. So let me just read, if you can find your Bibles or your app, it's uh, Romans 8, and we'll start at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. That's God's truth. So, we're going to look at the first of these, first que- of these three questions, and it's in, in verse 31. It says, when, what then shall we say to these things? I, I can just imagine Paul turning to Tertius, who's, who's actually scribing the letters Paul dictates for him, and, and when Paul gets to that last verse at the end of, uh, at the end of verse 30, and it says, glorified, I can just imagine Paul turning to Tertius and saying, could you just read over what we've just, what we've just written? Um, let me listen to what the Holy Spirit has just revealed to us. And Paul, as he listens intently with his eyes closed, gets to the end of that and he thinks, wow, or, or whatever the Greek for wow is. <laughs> and, and the words just then spill out of that thought, and it, it's like, well, what then? What then shall we say to these things? And that question sums up a valid response to all that we've been considering over these last few weeks. What can you say? Words are inadequate when you take the sum total of it all. But the question does provoke us to think back and say, well, what are these things? What are are you talking about, Paul? What are these things that, that come to mind? What have you heard over these recent weeks things that maybe your mind has pushed back to the back of your mind that you've forgotten again. So, we're going to just take a few minutes, and I'm just going to review where we've got to in Romans 8. And these things I'm going to sum up in five words. 
freedom, life, adoption, hope, and security. Freedom, life, adoption, hope, and security. Those are five words, I think, that sum up what we've read throughout the rest of chapter 8. And I'll just go through where I got those from. So, back in verses 1 and 2, freedom. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We all come into this world as rebels opposed to God's law. We all sin. But the good news is that Jesus is able to take that sin, forgive forgive us of it, and we are now no longer in condemnation. Nothing can be brought against us. We can stand free of any condemnation because the price has been paid for in full. And if you're trusting in Him alone this morning, your salvation is secure and you are under no condemnation. When God looks at you now, He doesn't see the filthy rags of your sin and your shame. What He actually sees is the righteousness of His, of his glorious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His, his wrath has been set aside and you're in right standing with the living God. So, that's the first word, uh, freedom. Next one, life. The Holy Spirit is living within us as a direct result of our salvation. And the seal that God places on our salvation is none other than Himself and His Spirit living in you. And we've thought about what it's like, what what it means to have life in the Spirit over these weeks. The Spirit is given to all who call in the name of the Lord Jesus. This Holy Spirit brings us life and peace. We were dead in our sins, and we were completely incapable of living a life that was pleasing to God, but His Spirit gives us the power to choose whether to sin or not. The temptations we can overcome, we can, we can overcome every temptation in His power because He gives us the life and the power and the freedom to do that. And we need to choose to live in the freedom that Christ purchased for us and provides for us. And we also have been thinking about how the Spirit prays for us. When we can't find the words because the pain is so crushing that we just cannot do anything other than groan, the Spirit knows exactly what those groans mean. And He takes them and He presents them to the Father in words that the Father can understand. And the Father listens and hears and answers our prayers. We can be sure of that. Adoption. We aren't just saved from our sins to become servants in God's household, not just like the angels. No, God's plan is much, much better than that. He adopts us as His very own children, as His sons and daughters, and He confers on us all of the privileges that only a father can give to his children. We become heirs with Christ. We get to participate in the fullness of family life and we gain a Father who loves us with an unfailing love and who always has our best interests at heart. So, when we turn up on the last day at the wedding feast of the Lamb, God will pull out the chair from the top table and invite us to take a seat as one of His children. Adoption. Hope. God gives us hope in verses 24 and 25. And as we're going to consider, we will live this life in a war zone. Satan, the world, our old natures, they all hate us because we're part of God's family. 
and the warfare that we experience in this life is inevitable, and our lives will be lived on the front lines. There will be suffering, and we might get hurt. But in the thick of the battle, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that the victory has already been won on the cross. There is rock-solid hope in the end. So God gives us hope. And the final word is security. And as we thought about last week, there is this complete and unbroken and indestructible chain that stretches from eternity past to eternity future that secures our salvation. What God has said that He will do before the foundation of the world is guaranteed that He will do that, and He will see you through to the end and bring you into that future glory. There is no greater guarantee than that that we can have. And He will make sure that everything, everything that you experience in this life will not go to waste and will be ultimately worked for your good to make you more like His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in 10,000 years from now, when we're sitting around that table and sharing our stories, we'll look back on the darkest, uh, most painful moments of our lives, and we'll thank God for them. Because in those moments, we'll be able to look back and we'll be able to see something uniquely of Christ's glory that only we experienced. And we'll be able to share that with our brothers and sisters. And eternity will be filled with stories, countless stories, of what the Lord Jesus Christ's glory actually means in the unique circumstances of all of His people's lives. So indeed, what shall we say to these things? The privileges of freedom, life, adoption, hope, and security. What will you say to these things? So the second question that Paul now moves on to is in verse 32, and it says this, uh, sorry, at the end of verse 31, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If all of these truths are real that we've just been thinking about, if God really is working all things together for our good, and if not a single one of those experiences is outside of His control, and if not a single one of those experiences can ultimately do us any harm, then we have to conclude that absolutely nothing in the whole universe can ultimately be against us. And you could render the verse in another way. You could say, since God is for us, who can be against us? But what do we do with the reality that we all live in? What do we do with our lived experiences? Because I don't know about what your week's been like, but my week certainly hasn't felt like one where God has been for me all of, that, all of the time. The sleepless nights the waking up at four o'clock in the morning anxious about stuff that's just blown up in your face in the, in the last couple of days. What does this verse tell us? How do we deal with those situations in the reality of life? Does the verse, is the verse really promising a trouble-free life in this world with no enemies and no conflict as Christians? We've just been thinking about war this morning and conflict this morning and particularly the two world wars that were fought in the last century. And, and even today, in, in, in 2019, you know, there's wars going on in Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, South Sudan, Iraq, northern Mali, Libya, just to name a few. This fallen, broken world will never see the end of war or conflict until Christ returns. 
And all of these physical manifestations of war actually point to something that's much deeper. There's a spiritual reality as well. Because whether we like it or not, there are two kingdoms that are active in this world. There is the kingdom that is under the direct rule and reign of Christ. And every Christian is now part of that kingdom. But there's another kingdom in the spiritual realm. And it's a kingdom that is opposed to everything that God stands for. And it's in open rebellion to God. And it's existed ever since Satan and his legions were thrown out of heaven. When God expelled them, an insurgency rose up. And there are only two kingdoms in this world in reality. And if you're not part of Christ's kingdom, if you're not submitted to His rule and reign, then you're governed by another kingdom. And if you're a Christian this morning, then God in His grace has delivered you straight out of that kingdom of darkness into His kingdom under Christ's rule and reign. Thankfully, these two kingdoms are not equal kingdoms because God's kingdom will overcome and has overcome. God has already condemned that a kingdom that's in opposition to Him on the cross, and someday He will utterly destroy it because that's the just and the right thing that a holy God will do. From the very first murder of Abel by Cain, every single war crime that was, that was, uh, that was carried out in Bosnia, every child who was poisoned to death in the, gas in the gas chambers in Germany in the Second World War or Poland in the Second World War, the genocide in Rwanda, all of the shed blood throughout human history cries out from the ground and God hears it. All of these men, women, and children were, were people, children created in God's image, and He will bring justice in the end for every single life that has been lost. But the problem of sin doesn't just belong to those who commit heinous crimes. Every single one of us is born into this world in opposition to God's rule over our life. Alexander uh, Solzhenitsyn, uh, who was a Russian author, uh, was incarcerated in forced labor camps in the Russian Gulag from 1944 to 1953. And he was put in a prison camp because he criticized Stalin in a private communication, a private letter to one of his friends. And in the middle of the most dehumanizing circumstances imaginable, he penned these words. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an unuprooted small corner of evil. Even though Solzhenitsyn had been unjustly sentenced to prison and hard labor, he actually came to realize that there's no such thing as an innocent human being. And it doesn't matter how small that little corner of evil is in our hearts. It's enough to put us in direct opposition with God. But thankfully, God in His mercy and His grace has provided a way out. 
we can escape condemnation that we deserve through Christ's work on the cross. So back to the question, what does that mean for lived reality as a Christian today? As soon as you cross over from darkness into light, as soon as you move from the kingdom of this world into Christ's kingdom, something happens. We now find that we've got enemies that we didn't even realize existed before. And we find ourselves in a battlefield. battlefield. And we have enemies that really don't care less about the rules of engagement. The The beheading of Christians on beaches in North Africa is applauded in some quarters today. The bombing of churches is encouraged. Pastors who faithfully preach the gospel suddenly disappear, never to see their families again. That's the persecuted church. And even as a Christian here in Aberdeen today, we still experience and know the reality of the conflict between these two kingdoms. In our church family here in Hillview over these last months, we see the battles with cancer. We see the battles with strokes and other sicknesses. There are unseen personal attacks on individuals to try and destroy their reputations or to damage their finances. And each of us as a Christian is painfully aware of the own internal battles that we fight every day. Those unholy desires and temptations that are at war with our new nature. And then there's just the ordinary stuff of getting on with life in this messy world that we all have to deal with. And I'm not saying that all of that is a direct result of Satan's attacks on us. Some of it is self-inflicted by my own stupidity. Some of it is down to the inevitable outworking consequences of our sins. But it's the unholy triad of the world, the flesh, and the devil that comes against us as Christians. And that's the lived experience that we have. And, And there is a tension between this truth on the one hand that we know that God is for us, and the actual reality of our lived experience. And life doesn't often work out the way we really want it to as a Christian. And Paul is fully aware of that reality too. He talks about his own experience in 2 Corinthians 11. And he talks about enduring imprisonments, countless beatings, sometimes to within an inch of his life. Five times he was subject to the pain and public humiliation of 39 lashes. He was stoned He was shipwrecked three times, and one of those times he had to spend the night in the open sea, in the open water. He had countless sleepless nights. He went hungry. He went thirsty. He experienced hypothermia. And he also talked about the thorn in the flesh, that messenger of Satan that kept on Adam and kept him humble. And through all of that, through all of that, Paul is able to still say, if God is for us, who can be against us? I think there are three lies that the devil tries to get Christians to buy that he wants you to believe. And they go along these lines. The first one goes like this. As a Christian, you shouldn't experience any trouble in your life. Does verse 37 in Romans 8 not say that you're more than a conqueror? If so, show me the victory. That's a lie. The second lie is this. Because your life isn't all plain sailing, then how can God really be for you? He set his face against you. And the third lie is along these lines. You're not worthy enough 
to be a Christian. You're not good enough to be a Christian. Just look at the mess that you've made this past week. Paul asks us to think about all of God's abundant provision and the promised security. And in that, we find that God is actually for us and will always be for us as a Christian. So don't believe the lies that Satan would have you believe. Yes, your enemies, including your own flesh, are out to harm you, but don't worry. Every single one of those attempts, God will take what is meant for evil and he will turn it for your good. Every blow that your enemy manages to land on you personally will just make that crown that you're going to inherit in glory even more glorious and even more spectacular. See, God does a wonderful thing. It's not just that He prevents us from being harmed. He actually totally reverses it, and He makes all those things good things. And it's these truths in Romans 8 that are the very same truths that God has given to us to protect us in the battle of everyday life. Our life in Christ cannot be taken away from us by any sword, any gun, any bomb, any prison, any cyber attack, hunger, thirst, cancer, stroke, depression, lifelong disabilities, bereavements, abuse, unjust bosses. None of that can separate us ultimately from the love of Christ. And God fashions armor for us and weapons for us that can withstand every single attack of the enemy. And He makes it with indestructible things. He makes it with these things. He makes it with salvation, righteousness, faith, truth, the gospel of peace, the sword of the Spirit, and prayer in the Spirit. And note those last two, the sword of the Spirit and prayer in the Spirit. God doesn't just give us armor to protect ourselves against the blows. He gives us weapons to fight with. And we need to fight with those weapons. We need to use them. We need to pray these truths for ourselves. We need to pray these truths for our brothers and sisters who are in the face and the midst of difficulty. And we need to stand in the gap for those who aren't yet in the kingdom. God hears and God answers the prayers of His children, and He's given us these weapons to use question, where does God build His church? If you think about it, God builds His church right on the doorstep of hell. The church is always camped out on the front lines. It's not in some secluded, opulent headquarters with a nice car park 100 miles away from the front lines. The church is right up against the front line because we are rescuing people from the battle. We're pulling wounded out of the battlefield. We're, we're delivering people from, from one enemy's camp to our own camp. And that's going to be a tough place to be. So, the third question. So, if we know that our lived experience will at times be uncomfortable and difficult, how can we be really sure that God is for us? Look at verse 32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How do we know that God is for us? Just look at what he has given to us, his one and only son. 
This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. So if the greater statement is true, then it follows that the lesser, strip, the lesser statement has to also be true. So let's just pause and think about that first part of the sentence, the greater part. Paul is talking here about Christ's sacrifice on the cross. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And there's no big words in that sentence. But the significance attached to these words is just enormous. And it all hinges on that tiny little word, for. And we can use the the English word for in a number of different ways. You know, it can mean because of, so, you know, I was stopped because for I was speeding. Or it can mean instead of, you know, let me carry those bags for you. Or in exchange of, I'll give you 10 pounds for that book. It also defines our relationship with things or people. You can see the depth of feeling she has for him. And it can also be used in the sense of giving. These flowers are for you. In what sense did God not spare his son, but give him up for us all? I think all five of those meanings shed some light on God's gift of his son to us, for us. Because of God didn't spare his son because of our sin and because of his love for us. Back in in Romans 5, in verses 6 and 7, it says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us because we were sinners and too weak to save ourselves. And he does it because of his love for us. He wants to spare us from condemnation and wrath. But in order for our sentence of condemnation to be lifted from us, a substitute has to be found. Someone who is strong enough to bear the weight of our sin and strong enough to carry the punishment that our sin deserves. So Christ took our place on the cross. He endured God's wrath instead of us, for us. Jesus, fully man and fully God, was subject to one of the most hideous instruments invented by man to punish or kill another human being. But it wasn't only the physical death on the cross because God cannot tolerate anything that is sinful in His presence. We read in Hebrews that God's holiness is like a consuming fire. Sin is utterly obliterated in His presence. So Jesus, the perfect, sinless Son of God, who chooses to lay down His life for us, when He takes on our sin, is going to be crushed and bruised and destroyed for our iniquity. His body is pierced for our transgressions, and He is crushed for our iniquities instead of us. And in His death, there was also something else happened. An exchange took place on the cross. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 2, it says this, For our sake He made Him to be sin who who knew no sin. So that's Christ taking on our sin. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 
The reason there is no condemnation for anyone in Christ is because Christ gives us His righteousness in return for our sin, in exchange for our sin. We are made right with God, and our identity changes from one of being condemned to one of being chosen. And God's Spirit can now dwell within us without destroying us. In relation to is another way that we can define the word for. And this is all ours because God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. The substitution made on the cross is all about relationship. Last, last week we were thinking about God's foreknowing of us before the foundation of the world and that God didn't spare His own Son to bring about a restored relationship for us with Himself, that we might be known in the fullest sense of that word by God. And then lastly, the word for is also used in the sense of being given to, in the sense that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is given to us, for us. And again, as we were looking at last week, if the ultimate good is defined in the universe as Christ Himself, as the living God, if that's the greatest good, then the greatest good that He can give us is nothing more or nothing less than Himself. And he does that in the person of his son. God doesn't spare his son. In other words, he holds nothing back. Nothing back. When he gives his son to us, there is nothing left for him to give. Because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all three persons in one. So there we have the greater part of the argument. And the second half of the sentence in verse 32 draws the obvious conclusion. So, if He's given him everything that He has in the person of His Son in the first place, how will He not also graciously with Him give us all things? Because everything else is lesser than that thing. In other words, if God held nothing back in giving us His, giving us his Son, then of course He's going to give us all of the lesser things that we need to secure our future and bring about our future glory, and bring us home to Him one day. I don't know if you can imagine somebody who you love so deeply and you care for very deeply. Just think of that person for a minute. And if that person was to face the death penalty for whatever reason, and your love for that person is so strong that you would be prepared to swap places with them, that you would be prepared to take their place, take the death penalty for them, so that they could actually have freedom and live a life. If you love someone that much, then what would you do if they simply asked you for a meal or a bed for the night? You'd be more than delighted to give it to them. And that's the same with God for us. God has already given up everything for us, and we just have to look at the cross for that. And if He's done that for us, then why would He not freely give us everything else that we need to sustain us through this life and to bring us home? Because He is sovereign over everything that happens in this universe, and He will ensure that every single one of those things is turned for our good. And He's a good Father who gives good gifts to His children. So, having looked at God's protection or security and God's provision for us, 
what do we do in light of that? How do we live in light of this? And I'm just going to finish with a story. John Weir Foote was a Canadian military chaplain during the Second World War. And he's one of only five chaplains who have ever been awarded the Victoria Cross. So the Victoria Cross is Britain's kind of highest award for gallantry in the face of battle. And he was awarded the Victoria Cross for his actions on the, on the beach at Dieppe in northern France. It was a failed attempt to take the beach, and over half of the Allied troops that landed on the beach that day, over 3,000 men, were either killed, wounded, or taken into captivity. And on the 19th of August, 1942, John Foote's actions earned him the Victoria Cross. And this is what his citation says. This is how it reads. Upon landing on the beach under heavy fire, he attached himself to the regimental aid post, which had been set up in a slight depression on the beach, but which was only sufficient to give cover to men lying down. During the subsequent period of approximately eight hours, while the action continued, this officer not only assisted the regimental medical officer in ministering to the wounded in the regimental aid post, but time and again left the shelter to inject morphine, give first aid, and carry wounded personnel from the open beach to the regimental aid post. On these occasions, with utter disregard for his personal safety, honorary Captain Foote exposed himself to an inferno of fire and saved many lives with his gallant efforts. During the action, as the tide went out, the regimental aid post was moved to the shelter of a stranded landing craft. Honorary Captain Foote continued tirelessly and courageously to carry wounded men from the exposed beach to the cover of the landing craft. He also removed wounded from the inside the landing craft when ammunition had been set on fire by enemy shells. When landing craft appeared, he carried wounded from the regimental aid post to the landing craft through very heavy fire. And this is the remarkable thing. On several occasions, this officer had the opportunity to embark but returned to to the beach as his chief concern was the care and evacuation of the wounded. He refused a final opportunity to leave the shore, choosing to suffer the fate of the men he had ministered to for three years. Not only did John Foote put his own life at risk for the sake of his fellow soldiers that day for eight hours, saving many lives in the process, but when he had the opportunity to return to safety, he didn't think about himself. He actually handed himself over to the enemy and he was taken into captivity for three years in a prisoner of war camp until the 5th of May, 1945. What would motivate somebody to do that? What would motivate a chaplain in the army to do that? I think John's foot grasps something of the depth and the glory of Christ's sacrifice that we've been thinking about over these last weeks and and this morning. And John Foote trusted in God to provide him with everything 
that he needed to sustain and secure his eternal future. And that trust was so deep that, and, and, that, and his security was so strong that he was able to let go of his own self-interest. And he was able to let go of his own fear. He knew what it was like to live in freedom. He knew what it was like to live with hope. He knew what it was like to live as an adopted son of the living God. And in that security, he was able to give himself up for others with utter disregard for his own safety. Christ set him free to love others and to point them to the even greater love of what Christ had sacrificed for them on the cross. So will you and will I take hold of these truths that we've been thinking about in Romans 8? And will we allow those truths to sink deeply into our hearts? Will we step out in the freedom and the security that that gives us and live in the freedom that God has called us to? Will we move, on, will we move forward and drag more people out of the fires of hell and rescue them for the kingdom of Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we just thank you that, of, of this amazing gift that you couldn't give us anything more. And Father, we thank you for all of the good gifts that you give us. Lord, I pray that you will strengthen us, embolden us in our spirits, Father. I pray, Lord, that we might know what it truly is to be free in Christ. Father, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.